I'll be reading from Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. And when we get to verse 11, I'd like for us to read it uh, all together. So I'll read verses 1 to 10, and then verse 11 we'll read together. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do, began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel altogether, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. You may be seated. This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Good morning. I greet you in the name of Jesus Christ, and happy Father's Day. I had a great father growing up, and I want to especially say happy Father's Day to him publicly. All through the age, men have often wondered about the end times. It even started way back in the Disciples' Day. They too wondered about the end times. How will it come to pass? How will it happen? A couple of years ago, I had a wonderful privilege of listening to a series of sermons on the book of Revelation. And as I was listening to them, it changed my life. My outlook and life changed. I had a different look on the future and was very excited about the end times and what Jesus will do when he comes back. Lord willing, the next couple times that I preach, I want to pick out different topics about the end times and preach on it. This morning, I want to look at prophecy, how it all started and how it came to be. So what do you think uh, when you think about end times? Are you excited? Or do you feel a little bit fearful? Or maybe you're thinking, isn't there another subject that we could be talking about from the Bible instead of prophecy? Especially since not many people know how the future is going to come about. 
But if we look in Scripture, we can know about the future. There is a great deal in the Bible about prophecy. And God did not put it in the Bible to just fill out spaces, but he put it in the Bible so that we can know and that we can get excited about the future. And especially as we think about this day and age, um, with all that's going on in the world, there's so much confusion, fear. What better time than now to talk about prophecy and end time events? As I believe, and I believe a lot of you believe as well, that it could happen very well. And if you really think about it, a lot of people throughout the ages believe that it could happen in their generation. But today, in this age, we see a lot of signs happening um, around the world that the end times is near. My desire as we go through these topics is not just to educate us on the end times so that we can tell all our friends that we know what's going to happen, but so that we can get excited, so that we can change our lives and have a better focus um, on these end time events. And I trust, as we look into God's word, that our lives can be changed. Biblical prophecy came about through prophets. Prophets that were called by God to preach. What is a prophet? A prophet is one that has a message from God. He was called by God. He is a spokesman of God. He was a preacher of righteousness. Some examples that we see in the Bible of prophets is Moses, Daniel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. These were all prophets of God. A prophet spoke of future events and also spoke to the people about the present day so that it can encourage the people or lead them to repentance and have a right relationship with God. That was the point of the prophet, to lead them to repentance and to have a right relationship with God. When God gave a prophetic word, he encouraged them. He told them to write it down. I want to read some of those verses where he commanded them to write it down. Revelation 1, 11, What thou seest, write in a book. Isaiah 8, 1, Moreover, the Lord said unto me, Take thee a great roll, and write in it with a man's pen. Exodus 24, 4, And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. Joshua 24, 26, And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. I think this, what God commanded the prophets, was a very important thing to do. God knew that we need it written down so that we can get the facts right, so that we can know what is true. When, God's, when the words of God are written down, there's no room for question. There's no room for error. As we see things that are happening as they were predicted, we know to whom we can place our faith and trust in. I want to invite you to turn to your Bibles to 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21. 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21. In this section here, it talks about how the prophets receive um, their revelation. I'm going to start reading verse 19. 2 Peter 1, 19. We have also a sh- more sure word of prophecy, 
whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The true prophets of God did not speak what they wanted to speak. They did not speak on their own mind or by impulse. They recorded things beyond their own knowledge and comprehension. And also they spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the word moved means to bear along, to carry. They were moved inwardly. And this word moved is also found in Acts 27, where some people on a ship in a great storm, um, they just left the boat sail and be driven by the wind by the wind because they could not control it. And that's the same way, that picture is the same way the, the prophets um, wrote their prophecy or wrote the prophecy of God. They were forcefully moved by the Holy Spirit as they wrote the prophecy down. Biblical prophecy is not man's idea, but is from God. It is written, like I said, so that we can know. And when we look at prophecy, prophecy covers a large portion of the Bible. In the Bible, there are 31,124 verses. There are 23,210 verses in the Old Testament. Out of all the verses in the Old Testament, there are 6,641 verses that contain predictions of the future, which makes 28.5% of the Old Testament is prophetic. And that prophecies, any kind of prophecy, whether it's first coming of Jesus Christ, second coming, or whatever. In the New Testament, there are 7,914 verses that, are, that cover New Testament. The New Testament. Out of those verses, there are seven. Or out of those verses, there are one thousand seven hundred eleven verses that contain predictions of the future. That makes twenty one point five percent is prophetic. And therefore, adding the two, um, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the whole Bible is twenty seven percent prophetic. If we say that God does not want us to know the future or what he has planned for the future, we are ignoring a large portion of our Bible. And we would say that's foolishness. In the Bible, prophecies concerning Christ. There are 333 prophecies in the Bible concerning Christ. 109 of those prophecies are already fulfilled at his first coming leaving 224 prophecies that need to be fulfilled at his second coming. Every time that the Bible mentions the first coming, the second coming is mentioned eight times. Many of the Jews miss Jesus' first coming. And because of that, there are some people that would say that we can't be so sure of Jesus' second coming. But we can see that the amount that Jesus talks about of the second coming is mentioned more and in great detail than what it is about his first coming. And yes, there will be people that will miss Jesus' second coming, but that is because of their unbelief. When we think about the future, we know that God knows the future. 
God is the only one who can predict the future and be right. We can all predict the future, but the question is, can we be right about what we predict? When God predicts the future, he is right on, and there is no errors. God is always right about the future. He is right even to the smallest prophetic detail. And we can see that about his prophecies concerning Jesus' first coming. They were all right, and they happened just like he predicted. The more statements that we as humans make about the future, and the greater the details, the greater the chances are to be proven wrong, but not God. So we ask, how can God predict the future? Well, number one, he's God. He's, he's a creator. He is all-knowing. He's omniscient, omniscient. He knows the past, the present, and the future. And also what he says will come to pass. And there's many verses we can look in the Bible where it says that. What he says will come to pass. And I want to look at one verse. Isaiah 46, 9 to 11. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Yea, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Is God controlled by time? That's one thing we have to wonder when we think about God knowing the future. What is God's relationship with time in the light of prophecies? You know, for us, we only live in the present. And we also learn from the past because of our experiences. But God knows the past, present, and future. God always was way before the earth was created, and he always will be. He is the king eternal. He is alpha and omega. He is the first and the last. Now just think about it a little bit. How do we measure time? How do we come up with time? Didn't it happen way back in the beginning? When God created the first day and the first night with the rising and the setting of the sun, that's how we measure time. That's how time um, was created. So when we think about time, time is created by God. He always was. God is, would you say, above time. He created it. So if God created time, can he not instantly see the past, present, and future? Would it not always be present for him? This is hard for us to understand. But doesn't that not make sense about his prophecies? The prophecies of the future are always right because it is the present time for God. And how shall we respond to this truth? Well, because of that, I think we should place our trust in God. He knows all things and is in control of all things. So put your faith in him. Psalm 31, 15, it says, My times are in thy hand. Deliver me from the hand of mine enemies and from them that persecute me. 
I want to look a little bit at the end time prophecies and just the study of it. When we look at end time prophecies, we get the idea that it's difficult to understand. In churches across the globe, it is not talked about very often. We shy away from this topic because it can be a very controversial subject. Why is that? Why does it seem so hard for us to understand? You know, that's what I thought about before I started studying end-time prophecies. I, th I, I thought it was just, yeah, something future. I didn't understand it. But when we read Revelation, what happens in the book? It talks about Jesus comes to the earth as king of all kings and lord of all lords. Jesus also ends all rebellion and makes all things right. And then Satan, who is Jesus' enemy, is defeated and Jesus is the victor. Here's a question. Who likes to read about their own defeat? Not too many of us. No one. And do you suppose Satan is the one who wants to keep us from believing what the Bible says about end time events? Satan is the one who makes the scriptures say something else than what is written. We allow Satan to confuse our minds instead of believing what is written. And like I said before, when we know what God has in store for the future, it will change our lives. Our perspective on life changes. I believe God wants us to know about the future, to shape our lives and to get excited about it. So when we look at prophecies, what is the correct way in interpreting prophecies? Prophecy often gets twisted around in so many different ways. How do we avoid that? I just want to share an example with you. So when I say that I am preaching at Weavertown Church, what does that mean? Am I saying that only my spirit is here? Am I saying that I am at a church like Weavertown? Or am I saying that someone else who may be a relative of mine is preaching. No, that, that's, all, that's all wrong. That's foolishness. And this is sometimes the way we treat end-time prophecies. We try to make it say something else than what is actually being said. We need to take it literal and believe it for what it says. Who are we to make the Bible say something else than what God has written down for us? When we read the Bible, we need to read it as understanding of a text that any person of normal intelligence would without using any special keys or codes. And I heard through a preacher one time that the Bible is written in a seventh grade um, level. And whether that's true, I'm not sure. But it's, it's written so that we can understand. Dr. David L. Cooper says about interpretation of Scripture, when the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. So interpret the Bible exactly like it says, unless it tells us, to make it say something else. At the time of Jesus' first coming, we can see 
that what was prophesied many years ago was fulfilled just like the prophets wrote about. And you can find verses in the New Old Testament that tells us exactly the way his first coming happened. For example, he was, he was the seed of a woman. He was the offspring of Abraham. He was a tribe of Judah. He was a son of David. He was conceived of a virgin. He was born in Bethlehem. He was the sacrificial offering for our sins. He was the one who would be resurrected from the dead. And each one of those statements were prophesied years before they actually happened, just like they were written. And should we not treat end time prophecies the same way? It will happen like it says. If you want to know how God will fulfill prophecy in the future. See how it has fulfilled in the past. So you may say, what about the symbols, especially in Revelation that are mentioned? How do you make sense of all that? And that, that part of prophecy can be a little bit difficult to understand. But remember, God has given us this book so we can understand, not have to guess on the meaning of it. For example, in the book of Revelation, when a symbol is given, it gives a description of something that is literal. And the way that we learn what the symbol means is doing a little bit more reading or by doing some study. In Revelation 1, there are a number of symbols given, um, just like the seven lampstands, the seven, um, seven stars, and all those symbols, if we keep on reading to the end of chapter 1, they give us, they tell us what they mean. So we just need to keep on reading so that we can know what it means. And there's another symbol that is given to us that is a little harder to understand. In Revelation 4, 7, and 8, I just want to quick read it. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts, and each of them sings six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night. Now who are these beasts? How do we find out who these beasts are? Well, if we look in our strong concordance, or look throughout the rest of the Bible, we can see that in Ezekiel and Isaiah, these beasts are the cherubims and the seraphims. The Bible has a built-in interpretation and the book of Revelation is often, is sometimes considered as a self-interpreting book. When we study prophecy in any, or any other topic in, in the Bible, we cannot look at one portion of Scripture and learn everything we need to. We need to find other parallel Scriptures that help us understand. And I believe our understanding is widened and deepened by tying parallel prophetic passages together. Our, our picture of what God is doing in the future and his purpose for the future is lots clearer. So I want to take a little look at end time prophecies, especially in the book of Revelation. A large portion of Revelation hasn't happened yet. It is still in the future. And there are some people that like to try to say that it has happened already in the past. Or it is in the present. Or it is happening right now. In the process of happening. 
But when we look at scripture, the next event on the prophetic timeline is the rapture. There's nothing else that needs to happen yet before the rapture. The word revelation means to unveil or to uncover. It implies the lifting up of a certain of a curtain so all can see alike what is uncovered. What does that mean? For example, I'm holding up my Bible cover. You have no idea what is inside it, or you may have an idea, but you don't know the description of what is inside it. But if I take the cover off, you have a better description of what it is. You see that it's a Bible. You see that it's a Dake study Bible. You see that it's brown. You see a red tail hanging out. You see that my name is on. Well, that's exactly the way Revelation is. It's an unveiling. It's an uncovering so that we can know what is inside, so that we can know what is going to happen. And the word Revelation, there's a couple verses scattered throughout the New Testament that helps us to understand the word Revelation. Ephesians 3.3 now that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. And this is talking about the Gentiles or fellow heirs and partakers of Christ. By revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Romans 2.5, it says, But after thy hardness and impotent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. He may know the righteous judgment of God through revelation. In Ephesians 1.17, it says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. He may know unto us the revelation of Jesus. So in the book of Revelation, we, can, we are being revealed to us so that we can know. Revelation 1.1, it tells us to show unto us. I'll just read it. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. Revelation is to show us, not to hide or make mysterious, things which must shortly come to pass. And what are those things that he's showing us? If we look do a little bit of an outline through Revelation um, chapters 1 to 3. It's he that he's showing us the, the events of the whole church age. In chapters 4 and 5, he's showing us the events of what's going to happen in heaven. And in chapters 6 to 19, he's showing us the events of the tr- future tribulation. And in chapters 20, he's showing us the events of the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. And he's also showing us the events of the eternal new heavens and the new earth. So in the book of Revelation, John gives us an outline of the book. And we see that in chapter 1 and verse 19. And it says, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Here's a good verse for the outline of the Revelation. What are the things that he saw? We see that in chapter 1, the glorified image of Jesus Christ. And what are the things that are presently? 
He talks about the churches in chapter 2 and 3. And what are the things that shall be hereafter? And we see that it starts in chapter 4. In verse 1 it says, And I will show thee things which must be hereafter, the rapture, the tribulation, the events in heaven. So John gives us an excellent outline of the book so that we can know and understand. And these verses are yet to be fulfilled. Chapter 4 all the way to chapter 22. When we look at the book of Revelation, it not only looks forward, but also backwards in the Bible and ties all the loose ends of the Bible together. When we think about future events, there are different views that we hear about, especially with the millennium and the tribulation and their timing. And I said before that the millennium means a thousand years. But the question is that people have, is the a thousand years literal or is it figurative? Is it present or is it future? And I'm going to just go through some of these views that people have. The first one is the all-millennial. The all-millennialists say that there will be no future, literal, earthly, 1,000-year reign of Christ, but that the kingdom is spiritual in nature and is presently fulfilled as Christ reigns from heaven and from the hearts of his people. And they say that it's happening now. The millennium is happening now. Post-millennium. This view teaches that Christ will return to the earth after the millennium. According to this view, the church is responsible in ending all rebellion and making all things right on the earth through the preaching of the gospel. Then Christ will come back to take his church into eternity. We are the ones responsible in making all things right. That's what these people think, and that is not true. The premillennial view is the next one. In this view, Jesus will return to the earth at the time of the second coming with all the saints and reign on this earth for a thousand years. This view is still future. It hasn't happened yet. And this is the view that I believe that the Bible teaches. Now we look at the different views of the tribulation. Um, first one is pre-tribulation view. This view believes that the rapture will happen before the seven years of tribulation and that the raptured believers will escape the wrath of God poured out during the tribulation. And I believe this is the view that the Bible teaches. Mid-tribulation is the next view. This view teaches that all that believers will be caught up in the middle of the tribulation. So we have the seven-year tribulation. The believers will be caught up in the middle. And the third view is the post-tribulation view. This view believes that the believers will be raptured at the end of the tribulation and will come back down to the earth to reign with Christ. Well, after the seven-year tribulation, the believers will go up and then autumn will go up and then come right back down. That's what they believe. So what is the purpose of Jesus' second coming? Think about that a little bit. To take vengeance on rebels, number one. To destroy the enemies of God. Second Thessalonians 1, 7 and 9, it says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. 
when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So we see is to take vengeance on rebels to destroy the enemies of God. Second purpose, or the third purpose of Jesus' second coming is to deliver Israel. Romans 11, 25 and 26, it says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mercy, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So the third purpose of Jesus' second coming is to deliver Israel, so that Israel can come to Jesus. The fourth purpose of his second coming is to deliver creation from bondage. Romans 8, 21, 23 says, Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but also but ourselves also, which had the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. The fifth purpose of the second coming of Christ is to put down rebellion on the earth. And this is Jesus putting down rebellion on the earth. 1 Corinthians 15, 25, 28, it says, For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are, under, are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. The sixth reason for Jesus coming back again is to bring universal peace and prosperity. And we see that in Isaiah 2.4. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords in the plowshares and their spears in the pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. And what a day that will be. <laughs> and there's more reasons that we could list of Jesus coming back again. And those were just some of them. So when we look at prophecy and study prophecy, it does something to our lives, or it should. We need to study prophecy and apply it to our hearts. And when we do that, our spiritual life will be encouraged, or we will learn how we should live our lives. And I want to look at some of those verses and how we should live when we look at Revel or study prophecy. Revelation 1.3, it says, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at, is at hand. We are blessed when we read Revelation. And this is, I believe, the only book that it says that we are blessed if we read. If we want to be blessed, read Revelation. Happy is he who reads, hears, and applies.
Why will we, why will we be blessed by reading? I believe it's because we will be with Jesus, those that are faithful to him, the one that redeemed us. We will know, we will learn that in the book of Revelation. And we will also see that God is in control of human history. You know, sometimes we can get discouraged about the way life is going. But when we read Revelation, we know that God is in control of human history. And that in the end, believers will enjoy a blessed eternity in heaven. 1 Peter 1, 13. It says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your minds, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here it tells us to gird up the loins of your mind. It's instructing us to gird up the loins of your mind. Take, take courage in the face of the trials that we may be going or that we may call, be called to go through. It also says to be sober. To live, to live soberly and righteously. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 is another one. It says, And, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as ye see the day approaching. Don't forsake the assembling together, especially as we see the end times coming. Go to church. And what exactly do you think he's referring to here? I believe it's a spiritual fellowship that we have with other believers, exhorting one another, encouraging one another, especially as we see the day coming, the end times. Second Peter 3.14 is another one. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. And this verse comes right after it talks about um, that the earth is going to melt up with um, fervent heat. It says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Strive to live a pure life with the help of the Holy Spirit. And on down a little bit, Second Peter 3.17, it says, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Beware lest ye fall from your own steadfastness. Beware lest ye fall, lest ye are led away with the error of the wicked. We need Christian fellowship to help build us up. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 18, it says, Wherewith comfort one another with these words. And this verse comes right after it talks about the rapture. And also 5, 11, about the same, same way it reads in 4, 18. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another as even as also ye do. We are to encourage one another in the light of Jesus' coming. Encourage that we are saved from the wrath of God and that someday we will live together as believers with him. 
And another one, 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, and 8. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, for an helmet, the hope of salvation. We are not to sleep. We are to be like we are not to be like the careless virgins that we see in Matthew 25 who didn't have the extra oil for their lamps. It speaks of indifferent and backsliding men. The warning here is that we do not go back into sin. And we are also to watch. Be always alert and live godly in Christ. Do not permit self to be overthrown by temptation. Be sober and watch. Live your spiritual life like this is your last day on earth. Be prepared. Be ready. Don't do things that you do not want to be seen when Jesus comes back at that moment. We are also to fight the fight of faith and lay hold of eternal life. So in conclusion, are you ready for the return of Christ? Have you placed your hope and trust in him? Or are you living in fear because you do not know where you will spend eternity? You don't need to live in fear. Repent. Trust in the Lord that he can save you. I trust as we go through this series that we can become more and more excited about the return of Christ. I want to close with Hebrews 12 too. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. Let's kneel to pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your many blessings and your love for us. Thank you, Lord, for salvation. Thank you, Lord, that you are coming back someday to take us home so that we can be with you. Thank you, Lord, for your many blessings. I just want to pray, God, that you just be with us today as we go home. Be with us after the service. I pray that you just guide and direct our fellowship. Pray that we can be a blessing and encouragement to each other. Thank you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.